I'm John. I'm Jesse. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. John, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Sure. Uh, I am John, and... John Mystery. And consistent with my mysterious background, my latest clue in deciphering the arg of finding out who I am is that I was a playable character in Frog Fractions 2. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to plug anything, it's fine. I think you just plugged Frog Fractions too. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's near and dear to my heart. So, sure, if you haven't played that game. Do a reverse image search on every portrait in that in that mode. Don't listen to this man. You know, there's a fact <laughs> on Steam ranking all of the playable characters in, in Biker Chicks. Yeah, I, I remember seeing from, this. From worst to best. Like the different tiers, right? Yeah. So, like there's the S tier and yeah. Uh, Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? No and no. <laughs> Even more of a mystery than John. <laughs> all right, let's get started on these topics. Jesse, your first topic is Canadian Heritage Minutes. Yeah, okay. So, this uh, maybe it would have been better to have Canadian Lords uh, on to discuss this other than me. But so, these were a series of dozens, I guess, of uh, historical shorts that were aired on Canadian television starting in 1990 ish, 91. And they ran until maybe, I guess, there are still some new ones. They're still making these, I guess. I haven't seen any because TV doesn't really exist anymore. But, right. Uh, these are such a cultural touchstone for for Canadians who grew up in the 90s, as I did. And I wonder maybe what your perspective on them is. So it's, there's a list of them you can find on Wikipedia. And they're, they're all like sort of notable minutes in Canadian, you know, episodes of Canadian history, often about really cliche, stereotypical kinds of things like maple syrup or the invention of basketball or these other things. that. Do they have one for the Canada arm? I don't know, but that's exactly the kind of thing they would have. The Canada. Right. Wait, wait. The Canada arm. The I don't know if it still exists. There, they had um, a big robotic articulating arm on the space shuttles. Oh yeah, okay. That was designed and built in Canada, I believe, and we were very proud of it, even though it was kind of a minor footnote in an American space program, but whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it would be interesting to to see the Canadian Heritage Minute about that because it must be shot in space. Yeah, maybe. They could use real footage instead of reenactment. Exactly. I mean, yeah, like in my mind, having never seen these, I'm, I'm looking at some thumbnails right now and I, I imagine it's the kind of thing that was made for no money. Yeah, Canadian TV in general, especially in those days, was kind of made for no money, but they were bankrolled by like the National Film Board, a bunch of government agencies, but also like Bell Canada, which is, you know, the big telco and some other things. Kind of strange. Also, I'm starting to develop a conspiracy theory about these based on the fact that they were started in 1991, which was like right around the time that Canada came as close as it ever got to just falling apart because Quebec was going to quit. Yeah. Uh. And I, w I wonder if like, this was really trying to like 
foster a sense of national identity and a kind of multi or post national state that you know was on the brink of disintegration so the the focus of these then so it's about these important moments in Canadian history but did they seem like it was something that was trying to unite all the various factions of Canada that were happening I mean it definitely has the kind of 90s flavor of like post history multiculturalism or whatever where like you know Russia is gone and now everything is perfect so like here's how we got to this perfect society where there's no more oh, ethnic strife interesting so there's like you know there's some about black canadians and there's some about french canadians and there's some about anglo canadians and there's some about you know different immigrant groups and mennonites there's like you know they tried to hit every possible demographic <laughs> right right it's a little bit it reminds me a little bit of like you know the textbooks of the 90s that would have like you know the the class depicted on the front of the book had exactly one student smiling of each possible ethnicity right. and gender configuration you know <laughs> like it had right. that kind of like maybe maybe papered over sense of everything is fine right when like you know of course everything was not fine lots of bad stuff was happening in canada even in the 90s and even today right 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 well i mean like now that i'm looking at so i i yeah, I'm looking forward to watching some of these. Um, which, which ones? So, um, Superman, for example. Yeah, I remember that one very clearly, even though I haven't <laughs> seen it in, since it was... Can you can you reenact it for us? Oh, almost. I mean, I could storyboard it, probably. It's like the two, the two guys are in front of the train. It ends on a shot of a train with a, a woman on the train. At some point, the woman's telling the man that that no one will ever care about a stupid a guy who wears tights and <laughs> can't even fly or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. And then he sure showed her because then he invented Superman and it was a big hit. And then it fades to the logo. You know, I, I know. love that. That's like that's the story. That's the takeaway. It's like some some people teasing a guy, and then he's like, "I'll show you. I'm gonna invent Superman." And it's like I mean, the the, the <laughs> thumbnail for this short for Superman is uh, looks like a a woman dressed rather in a proper outfit of uh, a bygone era, wearing a hat, and another woman standing next to her in like a red coat. And I don't know how any of it has to do with Superman. So, <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, who 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 am I to question the the wisdom of the? Canadian Heritage Minute. But I mean, like, yeah. So, as I'm looking at these closer to, again, literally just looking at the thumbnails, some of them actually look like they're fairly well photographed, too. So... Yeah, they're not terrible. I should mention one that you really should watch because it's incredible that it was on TV in the first okay. place. I guess Canadian TV, I don't know if you ever heard about our, our, like, safety public service announcements, but they're, like, world famous for being really gruesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've seen no. some of those. In that vein, the one about um, Louis Riel, I don't know if that's a person who Americans know, but uh, the one about Louis Riel, who was a Métis leader in the Plains, uh, who was uh, executed for treason, oh. and then later kind of rehabilitated as like probably actually a national hero. Uh, Whoa. Okay. So that one is incredibly dark, and I, <laughs> I invite everyone to watch it, but it's basically just a close-up of his face. 
and he's talking, he's like sort of summarizing who he was. And then you hear like part of the Lord's prayer. And then his face drops out of the frame because he's being hanged. Jeez. No. <laughs> yeah. It's brutal. Wow. Okay. So there's also one about maple syrup and I hope it's also maple syrup talking about itself and then being hanged. <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> the Superman one is also someone being hanged. It's really, it's really odd. Like they're just the Halifax explosion. I forgot about this one. This one's super grim too. Do you guys know what the Halifax explosion no. was? No. Okay, so until nuclear weapons were invented, the Halifax explosion was like the biggest man-made explosion ever, where an ammunition ship caught fire in Halifax Harbor. Uh, and exploded and like destroyed the whole city and killed thousands of people. Oh my gosh. And the heritage minute about it is about a train dispatcher who like finds out that the ship is going to explode and he like has to run to the telegraph office or something to like help evacuate the city, but he has to run toward the the ship so he knows he's going to die. Oh, jeez. Wow. Yeah, it's like grim stuff. My gosh. Well, and they're all like a minute, so you yeah, can very you, short. you can do so. There's like six pages of that I'm that I'm seeing. So like you can just spend like an hour of your day and just learn everything about Canadian history in this way. Yeah, I guess everything that was considered noteworthy by the government from 1990 to roughly today, which may or may not <laughs> include everything that you know others might expect. I don't know. Well, and the interesting thing I'm seeing too is that they, so it says they started in 91, but there are some here that look like they were released as late as like 2014. On the list on Wikipedia, there there's three from 2019. Oh, and actually there's one from 2020. These just, they just put them on YouTube now instead of broadcasting them on TV. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, we like broadcast TV still exists. I mean, maybe they're on that too. I don't know. I like to believe that perhaps... If you are viewing a YouTube video in Canada, there's the off chance that that will be your ad. <laughs> that would be interesting. Right, yeah. I don't think the Canadian government pays for uh, propaganda on YouTube currently other than to say, wear a mask and stay inside. Right. <laughs> Jim, which of these is most surprising to you? Are you looking at the list on Wikipedia? Uh, I was and then I lost it. Oh, no. Just disappeared from the face of the internet. <laughs> The one that I that struck me was responsible government. Oh, right. This is like a technical term in Canadian political history where – so, we had for a long time before, before the country was sort of formed as a single state in 1867, the whole government was sort of appointed by a system of like bribery and graft. Mm. <laughs> and then later, it was decided that it would be better if politicians had to get elected. And so, they would be responsible to the people. And so that was a responsible government. Wow. Like all of this is just kind of taking on a different dimension. This is just like the perfect distillation if you wanted to learn a couple things about Canada. So, and like, I like that this has come up because this is something that had a profound, it sounds like this had a profound effect on you when you were growing up and you would just see these on television. I mean, I think you could, you could like, Especially some of the more striking ones, you could ask any Canadian my age about these and they would know about them. Like it was back when everyone watched TV and there were only however many channels. I'm not seeing one for Alanis Morissette or William Shatner. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, interestingly, I guess these are not considered noteworthy figures. Maybe they will be in 50 years. Right. Or uh, Jim Carrey. I mean, there's lots of of Canadians who moved to the United States and became famous so they could make more money. Right, yeah. That might be part of it. It's like it's not that awesome to celebrate Canadians who left and then made good after they left. Right. And I think you'll notice even a few of these are are trading on the kind of like low-key anti-Americanism that is a big part of (laughs) Anglo-Canadian national identity, right? Where like there's one about an American who's traveling to the Klondike for the gold rush and he's like – being a nuisance or whatever he's got like he's got a deck of cards on him and gambling is illegal and he gets like arrested by the northwest mounted police who later became the royal canadian mounted police you know he's got a ridiculous american accent and he's like i I ought to shoot you down or whatever and the the cop is like i'm going to kick you out of canada because you're a dickhead i want to believe that those are the voices just (laughs) precisely like it's pretty close yeah well, and with all this too, I'm now I'm kind of wondering. I'm trying to think of an analogous American media export, or just something like that 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 would show as interstitials or something on network TV. And the closest thing that I can come up with, which is barely related to this sort of thing at all, is back when broadcast TV would sign off for the night, and then. In the morning at like 6 a.m., there would be this welcome message where they would like play the national anthem over these short video clips of just scenery throughout the United States. And it would, and then, and then like the news would air right after that. Yeah. When I think of, um, when I think of American TV propaganda, I think of, uh, like in NFL games where they take a 45 minute break to worship the military. Uh huh. Sure. Which is like apparently a thing that happens all the time there. I don't know. It's a little creepy. It's got like some fascist vibes. The American civic religion should definitely be a topic at some point. Has it not been? I mean, not explicitly. Okay. Because I was was reading about it somewhere and for the life of me, I thought, but I wouldn't have been reading it if I were listening to the show. Perhaps you paid for a transcript to be made of a future episode of like you you paid the transcriber to like listen to a bunch of these shows and then write a new one. <laughs> I trained a neural network. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I paid Amazon Mechanical Turk 25 cents. Right. <laughs> and I got a hundred different episodes. They have a, a hockey player here who invented the, um, the goalie face mask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That one's, uh, that one's pretty cool. It's. I think it's. It starts with him, like getting a puck in the face. Like you, you just you've just seen all these. You know them all. That's amazing. He, he's like. I, I don't know if he like spits out teeth or whatever. It's one. It's another one of these really gruesome ones. We're 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 talking about the Canadian Heritage Minutes, but we're also talking about just how Canadian Heritage Minutes scarred children, right? right. Or at least indoctrinated us, right? Like. Someone decided that this stuff in particular was important and managed to jam it into the brain of millions of people. <laughs> yeah. You know, this versus military worship, I'll take this. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, yeah. This could have been a lot worse. I mean, certainly if – not to put too fine a point on it, but I feel like the American version of this would be pretty different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. 
You guys ready for another topic? Always. Yes. John, your topic here is what are your tips for collaborating with people with higher or lower skill level than you? Yeah. Okay. So this is something that I I think I've I've struggled with this in almost everything that I have done that involves creating something with other people. And I'm talking about like trying to play music with people or trying to do school projects with people or even just now with work, if I'm doing programming projects with people, I, um, I often find that there is a mismatch in the level of skill between me and the other people that I'm working with. And I, I, I haven't really found a good way of navigating that. Um, and I, I think it's like when I am the more skilled person, it's like I want to help the people that I'm working with so that they can improve their own performance. But if it's, if it's flipped, then I feel, I always feel like I'm kind of a drag on the whole thing. And I don't know if that is just a common feeling or if it is just something that I'm experiencing that is unusual. So in, in your experience then with, with completing projects and things like that, with mismatched skill levels. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, my sense of it is that if like feeling bad for slowing the project down is just a matter of framing, right? Because hmm. part of your job, if you're working with someone who is less skilled than you is to help uplift them, you know? Right. Yeah. So that they can then contribute at a higher level. And that's, that's just, hmm. that's just how it goes. Uh, and like, it's just part of, of the cost of doing business. You know, if you, you can't always hire the, 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 all the best people, sometimes you have to hire less good people and then train them. Yeah. I think it's probably going to depend a lot on the specific context, the right way to handle this, but I definitely just the like level of social anxiety that these situations create. It's brutal, right? Like yeah, it can um, be, yeah. <laughs> being the person in a jam session who can like play three chords and everyone else is like a, skilled musician is just you know one of the worst feelings in the world where you feel yeah. like oh like this would be better if i wasn't here <laughs> <laughs> and that's like you know but it's oh i'm i'm here because my friends like me or it's fun for me to be here but like the product is worse right, right. <laughs> it's it's hard to it's like well, well you know there's like more important things in the world than the end result of this collaboration being like of maximum possible quality or whatever yeah yeah like if if your friends are enjoying your company, then if you're in a jam session, chances are no one's like either no one's listening or it doesn't really matter. Like it's probably not right. being recorded for posterity. Uh, then the the point is for everybody to enjoy themselves, and so you should do your best to do that. <laughs> that seems like a like a a good approach for things that are that are things like that that are supposed to be fun where it's just like a you know creative project and we're just going to get together I'm, I'm almost thinking like jim i remember there was a the time when you were going to game jams very often yeah and i would i would always hear about them and think wow that sounds awesome that sounds so cool i would love to be able to contribute something in some situation like that and then i thought well could i do game jams and i would think hmm well can I program? Not really. Do I know much about design? No. Music? No. Art? No. Hmm. And and so yeah, 
and, and 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 so like maybe that wasn't the the place to start if I was interested in doing those things. But yeah, yeah, jams are very high pressure, and I have worked with people at jams who are not good, and the result it it sucks. Like it really really sucks. Um, right. Because when you're when you have such a limited time to make something, you really want to be able to focus on your task and you're you're already going to have a limited enough time to make it without like sitting around and, and figuring out how the person next to you can do their job too. Right, right, right. Uh yeah, you definitely need to when you're when you're when you're going to have to teach somebody how to work as well as doing your own work, uh the schedule has to allow for that. Right. Okay. Something that's interesting that stands out to me about this is that the sort of Complementary uh, problem is figuring out how to compete against people of a higher or lower skill. And I feel like a lot of thought has gone into that and it's like well handled a lot of the time. Like in different games and sports, there's some way of handicapping one side to make it even. You know, you, you can start with fewer pieces on a chessboard against someone who's much uh, better than you or worse than you rather, right? But it's like a very different problem, even though it seems kind of similar when you have to work together instead of against each other. Well, yeah, because the way you the way you handicap your opponent is to do things that make them perform worse. But that's not how you improve uh, a team if you want the whole team to do better. Right? You can't just you, <laughs> you can't just pick out the people who are the weakest and and give them a beat like a, a more skills pill, right? <laughs> <laughs> or like pick out the people who are the strongest and and like get them drunk or something that would make things worse. And like if you had some way to boost the effectiveness of the team to compensate for uh, inexperienced people, why wouldn't you just use that all the time? Right, exactly. Well, like it, it even – so, the idea of um, like hampering certain high performers and stuff like that, I'm reminded a little bit of uh, like playing kickball in elementary school and the order in which you were chosen for the team was, was always a um, – it could be a source of embarrassment and shame, right? Like if yeah. if you are not picked in the first couple of rounds and then when it comes around and people are deciding between you and the other person and you're picked last, and then it's like, ooh, ooh, this doesn't feel good. Like I, I, I think they're trying to tell me something. But yeah, I mean like sports is another one where I'm just like, I. so recently I've been getting more active and I thought, well, what if I were to get involved in like some sort of pickup sports events near me, you know, uh, assuming that it's a game that we can play distant enough from each other. And, and, and that's another one where I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if I'm any good at any of these things. I don't know how any good, how, how good anyone else who's going to be doing this is going to be. So is this the right approach for this? I, I, I think my, my takeaway from this is that like, it will work better if you trust the people that you're collaborating with on whatever you're going to do. And if the thing that you're doing is not something with a lot of pressure, is that the, do we think those are the, the takeaways from that? Yeah, I think that helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not very satisfying, but this is a hard, <laughs> this is a tough problem, right? Well, also, so are you just, are you distinguishing this question from like, how do you mentor somebody or how do you be a, a, a mentee? Well, I, I think... It's it's related. Like it, it it might be something slightly different, but um, like is it just a matter of degree? Possibly. I mean, with with the mentor mentee relationship, I feel like that's more 
like there are very clearly defined roles where one person is saying, I am, I am of lower skill than you and I need you to help me through these things. And as the mentor, you're like, okay, my success is going to be if you are successful. And so my, my job is to help you improve. Whereas if you're both working on one thing together and the goal is to complete the thing and one person is able to go much quicker or much more efficiently or whatever, and the other person is taking their time because they are not at that same, same level, then like, kind of like what you were saying before, Jim, where it's like if you're, if you're showing someone how to do their job in addition to doing your own job, that can be like a source of, of tension, right? Yeah. Um, so, but I, I mean, I, I, it's almost like an, another interesting side of it though. Like what are your, what sorts of mentor and mentee partnerships have, have you experienced and what was the, you know, what was the result and that kind of thing? My, my primary mentor for programming was um, Alan, who was my mom's boyfriend for a long time. But like it was, it maybe doesn't really apply to this conversation because I was a kid and he was like a, I don't know if he was trying to be a father figure, but he kind of sort of slotted into that role. Mm. Um, and so the the expectations were very different from like if two from how you deal with like two coworkers. Yeah, I can imagine that would be like there's a lot of additional feelings kind of caught up in that. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's like classic kind of tropes about like father trying to live vicariously by teaching son to play football or whatever. Right. There's a lot of like extra kind of social pressures and stuff going on in that kind of relationship. Yeah. And then like ex experiences where I was the mentor um, were always very fluid. We're always very like, this is a friend of mine who I feel like it was never, it was never like officially like I'm teaching you how to do this. It was more like I would just be around to answer questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and again, like not usually in a situation where I would be working with them. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think that, yeah, it seems like it, that's a, a different sort of relationship that, that might, I, I, and like, as I'm hearing it, I would be like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking it would be so nice to be mentored by Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of situations where I've been in a relationship like that and I'm having trouble. I did, you know, the only thing that comes to mind is that I tutored a guy in logic but i found it really stressful because i enjoy teaching but i don't think i'm very good at it and so i would often like feel guilty if he wasn't getting something and i had oh yeah you know exhausted all my ability to try to explain it or like show him how to figure it out on his own or whatever and but he was he was always really pleased with the results of our session so he'd be like that was great here's your 40 bucks like every week i'd be like <laughs> Man, I don't know. I guess if you were like, <laughs> <laughs> if you got something from it, then yeah, sure, I'll 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 take that one. Right. As far as I know, he passed his course or whatever. So there you go. Success. <laughs> so one of the reasons this topic came up is because I at my work I'm about to switch from doing a project in R, which I've been using so far, to doing it in Python. And I haven't done much with Python in a very long time. And so I'm this weekend, I'm going to be sitting down and remembering Python. <laughs> um, 
And, and a part of me is, is worried because, you know, I, I fear that my Python skills are not up to the level that my collaborators skills are going to be. And so maybe I'm making this up, but I feel like there's, there's technology that exists to just like run Python code in R and R code in Python. So maybe you can just like, if they give you a discrete enough part of the project, you could write it in R and then hand it to them and they could encapsulate that <laughs> some kind of Python interpreter and then good to go. Here you go. Just, just slap it in there and it'll, it'll do the thing. I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting just to see how it, the, the, this new requirement kind of came out of left field today. So I, I was initially kind of perplexed and now I'm just like, well, I, you know, I've been meaning to do more with Python anyway, so it'll be fine. Yeah. Is this, uh, does this change your position in the ongoing war between our people and Python people on the internet? I, I think I'm kind of dug in on R being my preferred thing, just because like when I was getting into data science, it was the first thing that I really started playing around with. And I, I was kind of able to make it sing in a lot of ways that I was not really able to do with Python in my early Python experience. And also because everyone, it seems like everyone kind of looks down on R as being just the thing that the academics use. Um, as opposed to people doing real work. Right. I mean, I feel like I have exactly the same experience right. with it. Where I learned it in school because academics use it and I like it and I'm used to it. Yeah. <laughs> and you could probably make a pretty good argument that it's just like an objectively worse programming language than Python. <laughs> I mean, there is a lot about it that seems haunted for sure. Yeah. Um, it's, for example, it's pretty embarrassing. I mean, uh, this we're pretty far afield now, but it's pretty embarrassing that like a popular way to write R code is with a collection of packages that essentially totally replace the syntax. Right. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I mean, that's true. And also, I, I, the thing that I en enjoy about R is that for every little fiddly thing that you can imagine doing. Often someone has written a package that does exactly that and it's just... Oh, yeah. Especially if, if the fiddly thing appears in a statistics paper published between like 1900 and <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> 1950, there's probably like a one name, you know, a one word command to just do that on your right. website. <laughs> someone needed to do this and this is... They've created it and they never created anything else and they disappeared into the darkness. But yeah. <laughs> you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Yes. So my, my my topic is, are we allowed to talk yet about how for decades all 3D games were incredibly ugly? Uh, and then I have a link to a tweet here, which I'm not even sure if this tweet still exists. Why don't I take a look? It does. I was able to open it. Okay. The tweet is about how um, in Super Mario 64, the smoke particles when Mario like f gets set on fire uh, were are rendered with the wrong texture format. <laughs> and nobody could tell because 3D games just look like garbage anyway. Like, yeah. and you you look to the side, look at the two pictures side by side. Like mm -hmm. the the correctly rendered smoke particles do look a little bit better, but not that much better. Yeah, I, I was going to say the the one that is the apparent bad one. Uh, it, it's almost like it's very impressionistic. Yeah. Like uh -huh. it suggests smoke, but it also just looks like a bunch of noise. 
Right. I mean, almost literally, right? And yeah. You can see that the pixels have been like displaced randomly in blocks of two or something. So it looks a bit like the MS Paint graffiti tool. <laughs> it does, yeah. Uh, and one one um, counterpoint to this argument is that if you go back to Super Mario Brothers, the uh, Bowser's fireballs are rendered flipped left to right and nobody noticed because... Oh, yeah. No, nobody noticed because that game's art was so primitive. Right, yeah. And, and as long as you... As long as it appears to be something you're not supposed to touch... Right. Then that's probably fine. It's It's interesting thinking about how 3D games were terrible. I have this, there's an experience that I had when I was, um, it was like shortly after the PS2 had been out for a couple of years and I'd gotten used to playing games on the PS2, which, you know, something like a Metal Gear Solid 2 looked, compared to Metal Gear Solid 1, was a quantum leap in terms of what what it showed. But after I got the PS2. So I never had a, an original PlayStation. And so I thought, wow, this plays all these old games. Let me let me go back and play Final Fantasy VII because I've never played it or whatever. Um, and so I got all these games. And I remember after playing, it might have been Metal Gear Solid 2. And then I went and played Siphon Filter 2 on the original PlayStation. And I had, there was a time before that when I played Siphon Filter with a friend like in his dorm room for a long time. And I thought it was super cool and it was great. And then when I went back to it after playing games on the PS2, it was, it was unplayable because it just, it, it looked like a bunch of garbage. (laughs) Um, And, and the thing is it had always been garbage, but my, my brain had become so used to interpreting that garbage into something that made sense that it didn't really matter until I had something to compare it to. I have sort of really similar feelings about this. So my my real uh, heyday of console gaming would have been the, the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, but I did certainly play some, some Nintendo 64. Uh, never much original PlayStation, though. But insofar as I've gone back now to play stuff that I didn't play or that I want to replay as you know part of the sort of retro game boom or whatever, like I just have no desire to revisit so much of that early 3D, Eric, because like it's it's horrendous. Like the games look so bad, you know. And even the ones that I did like, you know, like I played however many hundreds of hours of N64 GoldenEye or whatever, and like the thing is just awful. Like it looks so bad. Those slappy hands. Yeah. What I what stands out to me is the to save on polygons or whatever. The there's like. In in the N sixty four Goldeneye, only the side facing you of many objects is rendered, and it and it rotates to face you, but you can tell sometimes, <laughs> right? It's like it just and you know, and the faces look awful, and you know, I've never played Super Mario sixty four, which I understand is this like real heresy because it's this like huge thing that was such a touchdown for so many people, and and I just like can't, nothing is going to convince me to go back and play that because i don't want to have to look at it yeah yeah that's a that's a tough beat and and i i feel the same about a lot of the the games from that era too where and and even ones that i that i did play at the time that i have fond memories of that i 
am not interested in going back to. Like again, the Final Fantasy games that were that came out on the original PlayStation. I mean, I know Final Fantasy VII is kind of a just a joke because of the big blocky arms and and everything else. But then you have Final Fantasy VIII where they had these these character models that have movement that looks somewhat human like. And if you stand far enough back and squint your eyes, the the figures themselves look like people. But now that we have big fancy TVs where we can see every pixel in great detail, it just can't can't do it. Yeah, you you just need to uh, to use a sufficiently blurry CRT filter <laughs> to get the old illusion back again. My solution to to this stuff is just to play games on a uh, on a CRT. An unreasonably large one that I can't move by myself. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but th- it reminds me that you know there's all these new fancy ways to sort of use FPGA chips to recreate consoles in a sort of specific way and play all the games and so on. But that also allows a lot of manipulation at the hardware level. And so a lot of people, for example, remove the anti-aliasing from Nintendo 64 games because they think it makes it look better. Like more like a PlayStation game? I, I guess, but like I don't understand it at all because I think, you know, that anti-aliasing was added to somewhat shield you from the horrendous way that these games look. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Instead, people are choosing to like get really super jagged, un-anti-aliased polygons on their gigantic <laughs> 75-inch plasma TV or whatever. And like, I don't. I don't understand it. At that point, it's like, what are we looking at? Pixels. Yeah. It yeah. Is, I, but it's, it's it's not what the developers intended. No, it's not. Pixels that are like a centimeter across. Yeah. And I guess my point here is just that like there was some mind virus that convinced us that even though it was like horrible to look at, 3D was cool enough to be desirable. And like if you look back at like magazine articles of the time and web forums of the time like usenet posts people were really really down on 2d stuff like i'm i'm pretty sure um sony didn't even allow 2d games on the playstation for a long time i think the the 2d games of the super nintendo still hold up i think that stuff still looks great yeah absolutely i i would agree with that and so the other Part of that is I wonder how much of that feeling that 3D was cool was just about like fitting in with what like what whatever the marketing was, everyone kind of bought into that and then it became like a cultural touchstone for people. Like I enjoy the PlayStation because of the 3D aspects of it. Um and I, I'm I'm kind of maybe I'm conflating that a bit with like the console wars between Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis, um, where that became like you were either a Genesis person or you were a Super Nintendo person. I do think marketing is certainly a factor that like for for decades now, game companies, because this is the only kind of improvement that they can consistently reliably make to their games is the technology is making it look better. That they that they've spent decades conditioning gamers to desire the next video game console and always desire the next level up in graphical realism. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, one one thing I will say for for this era of games 
that doesn't depend on graphical realism or anything. It's just that the transition from 2D to 3D did open up a lot of design space, I think, right? If you compare, yes. for example, yes. like a 3D racing game versus like a, a Mode 7 Super Nintendo racing game, no comparison, right? Like if you want to play a racing game, you want to play the 3D one. Well, yeah, and and Mario 64, going back to that example, is still one of my favorite games. And and I do think it was a, was groundbreaking in terms of play. And that might be all it is. That might be like, these are the, the new kinds of experiences you can have in a 3D space. And we're just so excited about that. We're willing to put up with eye-stabbing art for, <laughs> for over a decade until like it gets good enough to be soothing instead. For, for example, I mean, you know, Ocarina is from this era and it's pretty eye-stabbing if you go back and look at the original version of it. Yet it is almost universally beloved and often considered one of the greatest video games ever made. So, like, there had to be something there, right? Like, I'm not even sure what it is in that game's case, even though I love the game. It's, I think it's a matter of time and place. Like, I think for there's a similar thing where Final Fantasy VII is, is beloved, not because it's such a great game, but because it gave you, like, in that case, the experience was um, an, an epic story told with three CDs full of cutscenes, like FMV rendered <laughs> cutscenes. Like, you, you couldn't make that game, like, they, they Final Fantasy VIII and IX were the same thing, but people care much less about those two games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe there's a, maybe there's like an analogy in movies here or something, right? Where there's all these classic films where the special effects are kind of janky and you can tell that a lot of the backgrounds are paintings and the acting is really unnaturalistic but they were brown groundbreaking in their time and we love the stories that they told and therefore we put up with the obviously painted backdrops and there's got to be people who who love that stuff though like i people get attached to you know the, they find charming the the artifacts of older media like there's got to be people who love them the matte paintings that you can tell are paintings and people who like love the stilted acting of the 40s right and then they just want to see the best possible examples the most skilled versions of that yeah or like the the original example of of something that then everyone else went on to copy. I mean that like really like that's the other thing that the I I like you could almost say like the Mario games generally tend to just be groundbreaking every time a new one comes out or at least for a long time that was the case, right? Like yeah, each, yeah. Well, each new Super Mario Brothers game would just be a quantum leap before the other one or after the other one. If you ignore the the new Super Mario Brothers series which is the same every time. Right. <laughs> But yeah, all the all the 3D ones, like they've all been significantly um, reworked in terms of how what this game even is. Mm. And the exception to that I can think of is um, Super Mario Galaxy Two, which is just here's more Super Mario Galaxy. I I don't think I've played any of the Mario console games after Super Mario sixty four. Honestly, like. Be, and I think the reason for that is because, in my mind, putting Mario in a 3D space was such an achievement that even if it's been iterated on and there's been additional cool stuff happening with Mario in 3D, the first one was just so mind-blowing that 
there's no way anything else can live up to it. I mean, I, I think it's also the same, you know, any, this, the reason that Ocarina of Time is another one that just still holds up in spite of how it looks and how another one I haven't actually played, but, um, but just because you're putting Zelda games into a 3d space, you instantly just kind of have, have shattered the minds of everyone who knows what a Legend of Zelda game looks like. Well, and also it, it, you can't have that experience again because you're not 17 again. Right. <laughs> Jim, do you think that, do you think there's like a clear objective end to the era you're talking about here? Or do you think that we're going to keep retrospectively looking back and saying that everything actually looked like trash as long as it's old enough? No, I think games started looking pretty okay around like the Xbox 360 generation. Wow, that's that's later than I would have guessed you were going to pick. That's interesting. So maybe like the, the if you're looking at like a really blurry TV, like maybe the PlayStation Two would be acceptable, you know, or the GameCube. I think the GameCube did okay at like really cartoony stuff. If you look at Luigi's Mansion, yeah. that game um, picked a very cartoony subject and also had very uh, restricted camera angles, and so they could focus really well on depicting exactly where they, what they depicted. And that game looked okay on like a CRT. And so maybe like, maybe there's kind of shifting goalposts when you consider like, well, okay, now we have HDTV, you know, and we have to render that many more pixels to make something look good. Right. And I think about this all the time as a kind of enthusiast of old video games and old home movie formats and stuff. But like, there was a big, big change in, TV technology not that long ago and you know if you were making a video game for a console at some point you had to switch right you had to make a 16 by 9 frame instead of a 4 by 3 yeah well and there was a there was a period where you needed to support both right yeah sure and you could be yeah in principle someone could be playing your video game on like a you know whatever a 10 inch CRT TV or a 40 inch uh, flat screen TV in a different aspect ratio, maybe. Right. Yeah. I remember it being a big deal when like Dead Rising, I think was the, the name of it, um, the game where you fight zombies in a mall, uh, the text was too small to read on a on a SDTV. Like it was just illegible. And a lot of people complained about that because a lot of people still had those TVs. Oh, wow. It's kind of amazing to think about how much television has changed just in the last like 10 years. I, th I think I got rid of my last CRT TV about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think my parents' main TV still is a giant CRT TV. Yeah. Is it widescreen? That's an interesting question. It must be. I can't imagine that it's not. So it's like, you know, one of the really late era probably. Right. Yeah. Maybe they got rid of it. I don't know. I haven't been there in a little bit. You should call them up and find out. Yeah. Probably call, should. Call your parents. Call my parents live on air. It's it's, uh, it's past midnight here, so right. <laughs> okay. yeah, fair enough. Are you guys ready for another topic? Yeah. yeah. All right, John. Your topic is the website I build. For, I built in high school and college is lost to the ages, or how to reconstruct memories of your past without external records. Oh yeah. This is this is still kind of a sad subject for me. So I did a. When I was younger, I fancied myself a writer. And um, so, as many 
people in high school and college did. I created a personal website where I just wrote about things that were going on in my day um, before it became super easy to use services to do this. Um, so I, I built a website and I think it was on GeoCities at first, but then there was this kind of, there's this weird moment in the very late nineties, early two thousands where some, some individuals would own domains where they would then host other people or give them space so that they could create their own art project website. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you'd have some website and then slash whoever, and then you have all these different names. And there was one that I found in 99 called altern.org. And it was a, it was very like a bare bones site that was all in French, but it basically said like, create your own website with storage space for free. And you could just sign up with an email address and it would be like, there you'd have it. Um, and you could host websites and you could get an email account there. And so I was hosting my, so at some point I switched from GeoCities to this other host just because I created an account. Um, and I put all my personal, you know, my fancy art website that had different, you know, you'd mouse over with the cursor and it would turn into a plus instead of a, a regular cursor or something like that. And, um, but then at some point that website became involved in some sort of a lawsuit in France where someone posted content that was not appropriate or something. And the government ruled that websites are responsible for the content they host. And so the guy who ran altern.org just said, all right, no one gets to post anything anymore. I'm not going to do that. I'm just, I'll still do email, but you can't, we're not going to do the other thing. Was that, was that based in France? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a serious business. Yeah. And, and so the result was, because I didn't read French uh, and because Google Translate didn't really exist then, I didn't know what was going on in the things that were posting on the main page of the website. So at some, like one day I woke up and my website was just gone. And I think I had some local copies, but that was also the time when storage space was at a premium and hard drive failures were common enough for me, at least building my own computers all the time that at, at some point I just lost it. And I have, I feel really bad about it because I put a ton of work into these various iterations of it. And it, it was, it was cool. And there was a lot of like contemporaneous notes of my time. Like when I was in my first year of college in New York and, you know, when I was about to graduate from high school and all that stuff for the most part, I think there's still bits and pieces of it somewhere in, you know, deep recessed folders and some storage drive somewhere. But, but most of it is, is just utterly gone. Um, and I've tried like the internet wayback machine and archive.org and stuff. And it just, I can't, I haven't been able to find it. So part of the reason I have gone on this long winded tear about this is that now I, sometimes I'm, I try to remember what was going on in my life and what, what was important to me around that time. And it's actually kind of hard for me to put it together because I don't have a lot of other written records of from myself in my voice from that era. And, and so it's, it's like, there's this weird missing piece of myself that I externalized and has now been erased. And I wanted to know 
if you have any ha- have have had any similar sorts of experiences or if you find yourself like with gaps in your memory that that you are aware are gaps but uh are un unsure about how to recover <laughs> Yeah, I've got a few gaps and it's mostly like old music. Like I've been pretty diligent. Like every time I get a new computer, I'll just copy the contents of the old hard drive onto the new one basically. Yep. Yep. Uh, And there were just a couple of instances where I failed to do that and lost something or like the drive crashed before I had a chance to – or like I, I had backup disks but they got corrupted or whatever. And it was just like I like the only things that I think are missing are like some old songs that I wrote, like mods. Oh yeah, okay. And everything everything else is like pretty intact. It's all like I I'm never gonna show anybody because it's embarrassing as hell. Right. <laughs> it's not for them. But I also have like some history on the internet that like has been slowly going away as like the hosting costs keep going up because I like built this on old technology and like like we don't want to keep supporting this technology or we'll we'll charge you more for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like I just let uh, celebritiesinprison.com expire because <laughs> it was like up to 12 bucks a month in hosting fees. I'm like, what? Fuck you. Uh, and I still have all the data. I just – but the website doesn't exist anymore. Despite being a the same kind of nerd as you guys, it sounds like I, I definitely have a very different approach to like my computer files, which is to say that I've never been very serious about backing stuff up. And I kind of regard all of my files as like, you know, tr- sort of transitory items that eventually I'm going to lose. Wow. That's and it, yeah. And it doesn't bother me too much. Yeah. Which is interesting, but maybe, <laughs> maybe I should adopt your strategy because uh, I have a real trouble with this. I just have like a very poor memory, especially long-term memory in general. Yeah. I think maybe this is like a some kind of mental health symptom or something, but uh as a result, I find, you know, for example, once in a while you fill out some government form and it asks you, "Oh, write down your address for the last 15 years." Yeah. <laughs> no way could I do that. Yeah, it's impossible. It's so hard. I can't I can't even re- like A, I can't remember all the places that I've lived in the last 10 years or whatever. B, if I could, I couldn't remember what order they were in. You know? <laughs> yeah. C, if I, you know, let alone what years. I find that stuff really hard, but it seems to me that lots of other people can often sort of recall the specifics of conversations that they had, you know, a year or more after the fact, which kind of blows my mind because I can't do that at all. My memory is very selective. And I've talked about this on the podcast, but like what I tend to remember best are things that I find very funny. So like if if I remember a, hear, a, hear or think of a very good joke, even if I don't say the joke out loud, I will remember it. <laughs> Just it's it's there and you it, it's like a joke you can tell to yourself in your head. Yeah. But can can you remember the context in which you learned the joke and who told it to you and all that stuff? Sometimes. Probably there are some jokes where I'll remember the joke but don't remember why it's funny. Because I don't remember the context and then so I forget the joke because it's not funny anymore. Right. I was thinking you could use this as a memory strategy where if you have something you really want to remember, you know, as your child is being born or whatever, you turn to the doctor and say like, just give me any joke. Just tell a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it has to be – it has to strike me as being exceedingly funny. The threshold for uh, for memories sticking yeah. related to humor, right? 
anyway, so my my mind is gone is my point. <laughs> here's here's the thing though, like do you if you had this stuff, would you ever look at it? Would you like it? I think if I somehow were to come upon it again, I would spend a good, you know, part of the day going through all the little bits and pieces and trying to, you know, explore what I'd created and see how it all worked. And I would allow myself to kind of remember that period. And then I would probably just put it in deep storage somewhere and and not really look at it again. Or, I mean, the alternative is because it's a, I'm thinking of a web page, then I could put it up on the internet somewhere and have it in context as an historical document. Like, this is what I was thinking about when I was 19 years old or whatever. Right. It's it's kind of interesting, actually, that, that that's even possible, right? Because web technology has changed a lot since then, but it's it's been enough backward compatible that you can still render a web page written in 1999. Right, yeah. right, right. Which is not true of, of many other kinds of things, right? Like if you if you made a home movie on mini VHS or whatever, like it's a real hassle to watch it on a regular TV now. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I lament the tapes that I used to have where I no longer have a tape player. Nor do I have, I don't think I have any of the tapes I used to have either, so. Well, that solves that problem. Yeah. <laughs> Throw it all <laughs> kind of out. T- tapes are these like uh, cas- music cassettes, you mean? Or yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm just thinking of like cassette tapes of, you know, recordings that I might have made at home with friends or something like that. And even like things like albums or mixtapes that I recorded are not as important or like songs taped off the radio, right? Like none None of this stuff really matters, but the important the important part of it was the the object as a record of a moment, right? Yeah, you so, want to see your handwriting on the label, not hear the contents. Exactly, or or like if I did want to hear the contents, I would want to be able to experience the the sound of of the recording head as it's going over the tape that was causing it to sound terrible, rather than just you know loading up. A streaming service and playing the song that I was listening to, right? Like it's not at that point, it's not the music itself; it's the memory associated with what went into putting it on the tape, right? The physicality of the medium and exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. imperfections, that kind of stuff. The smell, yeah. All right, we have time for one more topic. All right, Jesse, your topic is the Lost Willie Brown records. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys know who Willie Brown was? I've heard the name. Yeah, I think so, but enlighten me. It's possible, actually, that there were two people with this name, but he was at least one person who lived uh, in Mississippi and that recorded some music in the 20s and 30s. And so the interesting thing about him is that he was present at this like legendary recording session where they drove up to Wisconsin, uh, him and Charlie Patton and Louise Johnson and Son House, and they like recorded this amazing collection of blues music and willie brown recorded uh six sides so at this time these would have been on shellac 78 rpm records which have like maybe four minutes on each side oh wow, okay uh yeah they sort of predates vinyl but so s- three records is six songs and one of them has future blues on one side and m and o blues on the other and it's like one of the greatest pre-war american blues records probably ever oh, i mean wow. ever ever is a pretty small and by records we're talking like this is a single yeah i mean 
the albums you couldn't make an album in 1930 right because you can't get enough music on one side of a, a disc right so these are like the size of lps but they have four minutes on each side roughly right hmm. pre-war american blues music is not a long period right it's maybe you know 1927 to the war but it's it's really good it's one of the best uh, pieces of music of that era probably and we know that he recorded four more sides that day or at that session anyway because there's like an old catalog advertisement or something that has the names of the re- like the songs oh interesting <laughs> but no one has ever found one of the records like it's they they seem to be completely lost a bunch of these old like pre-war american music is really rare especially blues uh and lots of songs are just missing or they exist on like one copy and that copy's beat to shit because someone used it as a dinner plate for a hundred years <laughs> as one does i'm not sure what my point about these is other than it would be really cool to hear these songs but there is a kind of funny anecdote about them which is that because these are so rare and because uh old blues music is sort of exclusively the province of rich white boomers from the east coast these days the the really rare ones are incredibly expensive because there's a small community of people who are willing to pay ridiculous sums of money for them right 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 and so someone went on youtube and recorded a cover you know this popular genre especially in the early days of youtube is guy sitting on couch playing guitar oh guilty and so it's it's one of these <laughs> videos and in the description he's like oh i found like uh i found a record at a flea market and i like the song on it so this is me playing the song and the t- the title of the song is grandma blues which is one of the lost willie brown songs what wow but here's the thing right so in the comments of this youtube video which as far as i know is still up i should i'll try to find it for the show notes a guy shows up named john tefteller who's one of these guys who will just pay any amount of money for one of these records, right? Like if you found one of these records, he would fly you to go <laughs> so that he could, you know, just shovel money at you until you agreed to to hand it to him, right? So he's like, he's got multiple all caps comments on this video being like, please call me at this personal <laughs> phone number. Right? You know, just putting his phone number in the YouTube comments, trying to get this guy to please, please send him this record. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this was like, this was a prank, you know? This was yeah. like a guy who knew. <laughs> but the thing is that the song is good. Like his cover is nice. It doesn't really sound like a Willie Brown song, but it's like it's the kind of song that they would have played in 1930. I don't know. It could have been. <laughs> what a crazy thing. And and the these are so you know, these and other records that were made by this record company Paramount Records are so desired that people have gone to the tiny town in wisconsin where the factory used to be and dredged the river trying to find <laughs> records because when the war started and you couldn't get shellac anymore to make records with because it was all like going to sh- shine boots or whatever uh they just they just like dumped them all in the river and like kids would use them as frisbees and just shatter them against the wall what because vinyl uh, or shellac records are like very fragile if you drop them they shatter so, you know, they would just like smash them for fun. And then now, now it turns out all these, you know, they were smashing Charlie Patton records that were worth 
hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Oh my god. So have they found anything? Like I'm presuming they found some records in the river, just not the ones they were looking for. To my knowledge, nobody actually found any any records in the river, but these do re- do show up sometimes. That's the thing. So hmm. you know, there's like um, there's a Sun House record from this session, I think, that was discovered in an attic in like 2012 and is the only known surviving copy. So th- it could happen. Like someone could just have one of these records still. There's somewhere they wouldn't even think about it in, in a box. Right. The real <laughs> one sad thing is that this particular record label, like the records aren't even very good. Like they're not well recorded because it was sort of a scam to sell um, phonograph cabinets. Because the record label was like a subsidiary of a furniture company that they had just like, they were trying to figure out how to sell more furniture. And one idea was, <laughs> we'll sell phonograph cabinets with a phonograph and some records. And because in the late 20s, black people in the South finally had some money and could afford things like nice furniture, they were like, oh, well, we need some music to sell to black customers. So they went and recorded all these blues artists and stuff. Huh. Wow, but eventually, when you know, when they couldn't get shellacker anymore, where they're like, "That's fine, we'll just go back to making chairs." So they just threw all the records away. Wow, that's incredible. When you say a shellac record will just shatter, how shattery are we talking? <laughs> I mean, I've I've never dropped one of mine, so hard to say. <laughs> but I think if you drop it on the edge, it's gonna break. I'm not a big vinyl person, but as I understand it, if you drop a vinyl record on the edge, it'll probably bounce. Like it's not good for it, but it'll bounce. Interesting. Okay. So my my I guess my question was, is this something where one might expect in one of these places to find shards of records? And if so, are the shards such that with modern technology you could like take this wedge of a record and scan it or something and be and able can to you join different records together like a burrows cut up <laughs> right i mean it is it is definitely possible to read phonograph discs like these you know either 78s or 45s or whatever with like a laser like you can read them up yeah okay and reconstruct the reconstruct the signal so i mean in principle yes i guess but you know as far as i know no one's even turned up with a piece of one of these records i so. see okay yeah so it would be interesting though if you got only yeah. part of it and you had to use some maybe like machine learning based uh, <laughs> interpolation to try to like get you know guess what the rest of the song might be like or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why I remember I remember seeing something many many years ago, and I'm sure the technology has improved since then. But there was something if you have a high enough optical scanner with a high enough resolution, someone scanned part of a record. And was able to take the scan and from that do some processing and convert it into a signal that they could read. But this is a, this is all pie in the sky stuff. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of how you're not supposed to let people have your keys showing in photos because you oh, can yeah. you can cut a blank key from a photo. Or the time when the um the the news station wanted to do a uh, a piece about Bitcoin and they showed a QR code live on television. And someone immediately stole whatever was in the wallet. <laughs> <laughs> That's I think this was a MythBusters thing. Once there was this idea that that you could 
recover the sounds, the ambient sound of the room from pottery, even ancient pottery. Oh, yeah. I don't know if they decided that was possible or not, but. Uh, that's an incredible idea, though. The, the keys thing, that, that it feels like that's kind of stretching the, the boundaries of like what keys are supposed to be for. Like <laughs> another thing you can do to get into somebody's house is just break a window, right, right. which is way easier than taking a photo of their keys and creating a new key from it. Right. Like, do you know the phrase uh, rubber hose cryptography? Yeah. Rubber hose crypt analysis? Uh, it sounds like yes, but tell the listeners. <laughs> yeah. So this is the idea that one way to recover the secret code of a of a you know some kind of encryption system is to find someone who knows it and strap them to a chair and beat them with a hose until they tell it to you. Right. Yeah. Very effective. Very simple. You don't need to invent any. You don't need to read any white papers. <laughs> right, exactly. You don't have to understand any complicated algorithms made by people with long beards. Don't have to download any packages that only do that one key. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's all. That's all the time we have on Topic Lords. J- John, if this is something you want, where can people find you on the internet? I don't. And okay, okay. They, they might be able to if they put all the clues together. <laughs> you might want to listen to the episode where... Craig talked about uh, pretending that he didn't exist in interviews with journalists about Glittermitten Grove. Oh, yeah. I, so, <laughs> okay. I, I do want to listen to this and I want to chime in because I too was confused about that for a time. <laughs> Very good. He's real, right? He's a real guy. Okay. Good. <laughs> Can I... I don't know if this will make it into the show. Can I say one thing that I think was a huge missed opportunity in the whole Frog Fractions 2 thing? Go for it. Which I'm sure you've heard many times before, but really, really, the game should have said three when it came out, right? That's oh, way I mean, funnier. It, it, says, it says three in the end credits. Right. <laughs> I, I know, but I, I feel like it should have, you know, it would have been funnier if, if the game was just canonically frog fractions three yeah i don't i don't know yeah i and and like i i've i've my my branding is not consistent i've definitely called it three in public and the the arg itself was two but then i sometimes call it two and anyway i mean keep them all guessing that's the point yeah what i was getting at john was that uh craig was kind of designing an arg about where people would figure out whether or not he was a real person and then he realized (laughs) that this arg would involve like asking people to dox him right? <laughs> and right. decided to back off from it. So don't, don't go too hard on this, uh, this whole nope. thing. Nope. What aspect of that? Like, that doesn't seem like an arg to me. It just seems like regular sleuthery, right? Like where's the, where's the line between an arg and just figuring something out? <laughs> yeah. He would need to like slip fake information to Spokio or something. It's a little bit how like rich people blur their houses out on Google Maps. Right. By, by paying operatives to go in and manipulate each bit on the hard drive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jesse, would you like to – wait, wait, no. I was going to ask you if you wanted to introduce yourself. Um, <laughs> I've been very clear about this on this episode and the previous appearance. If you want people to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I don't really recommend it. My username on Twitter is the Fring thing. All right. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it. 
or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.